This is an ABC podcast. I'm Ed LeBrock with you on Conversations today. As you are listening to this show, it's quite possible that you're sitting down, maybe in a car seat, on a sofa, in your office chair, or you may be sitting in one of the most iconic of Australian designs, a Jimmy Possum chair. Jimmy Possum chairs were first built almost 150 years ago in northern Tasmania. They are elegant, simple and ingenious. But who really invented them? Because Jimmy Possum is an enigma. Did he live in a hollowed-out tree trunk? Was he a convict or a First Nations man from the mainland? Did Jimmy Possum even exist? It's a mystery around which the work of Dr Mike Epworth is centred. Mike is a chairmaker himself from Queensland, and Mike has built hundreds of chairs over the past 40 years in the Jimmy Possum tradition. So the legend of Jimmy Possum lives on in Mike Epworth's chairs and has now come to life in the first major exhibition of this Australian artisan tradition. Hello, Mike. Hi, Ed. How are you? Mike, people might recognise Jimmy Possum as a brand name, but who is Jimmy Possum the person? He's an enigma. There is no mention of him in in any prime records. There's no newspaper mentions, nor birth certificates, or anything like that. He was an invisible person. It's, it's, It's just so steeped in mystery. We have some understanding that he actually existed up until our research that started about six years ago. That was a point of conjecture. People thought he was an amalgam of other chairmakers, or that he was just an apocryphal character. Mm. But we can definitely say he lived and lived around various villages in the Meander Valley in northern Tasmania. So there are three possibilities as to who he might have been, but what are your theories? First possibility was he was an ex-convict. His age fits nicely into being, if he was a young man and emancipated, he would, as an old man, still be working around about turn of the century. The first sort of mention of a Jimmy Possum chair comes in in 1886 in a in a, a journal, a Tasmanian journal, and it was looking at well, stories about this this mustering team that takes a mob of cattle from one place to the other, and they stop at one one little town called Mole Creek, and the protagonist says that he talks about um, the murder that took place at this little house, little hut, and it actually was a real life murder, and says, yes, the man was sitting in that Jimmy Possum chair when he got whacked with an axe. That was written by a teacher in Westbury and that suggests that he understood that the Jimmy Possums were associated with a convict. And there's a possible Irish connection with Jimmy Possum as well? Yes, the the antecedent of the chair is a chair called the Irish Hedge Chair and it was created for teachers in hedge schools which were illegal schools. The British authorities had banned education for Irish Catholics, and so they would set up illegal schools behind hedges. The Jimmy Possum chair is sort of the next step up. There are elements, a lot of elements, in the Irish hedge chair that are very similar to the Jimmy Possum. So he could... Jimmy Possum could have been a freed convict. Yep. Um, He could also possibly have been an an Indigenous man, a First Nations man. Absolutely. He's not from a Palawa man, a Tasmanian First Nation man. Um, It's fairly extensive consultation with the community there and they've 
ruled that out, but um, could very much be someone coming over from New South Wales or South Australia. There's very few uh, non-First Nation people with a diminutive name, Jimmy, followed by an animal name or a totem name. Second is the where would people learn to make these type of chairs? The hedge chair tradition was still in Ireland, but they were recovering from the famine in those years. My theory is that it would have been a, a mission and it could have been a Catholic mission mm. of Irish priests who associated that with learning and wanted to teach some skills that they believed the people there needed. I mean, weapon makers from that era, I mean, First Nation weapon makers would have been a, a walk in a park to make a chair after what they were doing when they look at their weapons. Yeah. I mean, they're just magnificent and they use very, very few tools. There's a postcard that may be of Jimmy Possum, is that correct? Yes, yes, it's watercolour. Yeah. yeah. It's in in plain air. It depicts a, a man sitting in a, a opening of a large tree. Mm. Uh, and that in itself is an unusual event. And there, there are a lot of people around at that time living in trees. Who painted the postcard? Geelong artist Laura Davy. She was an interesting character too. She was a daughter of a an English emigres uh, who became successful builders in Geelong and she looked after her mum and father until they passed away through long illnesses and then decided that it was her time and so she went to, to Melbourne and learned to paint and then she started a school for young ladies in Geelong. And when she was in her 50s, she got this commission to do this postcard series, yeah. Quite the Adventure. And because there was no planes and, and obviously no ferries going over cars, she would have been taking one of the many little boats that went over and he'd landed at Devonport, Launceston. And then from the series of watercolours we see that there's a sort of an arc from Devonport to Launceston. There's some very identifiable landscapes at Launceston. And then there's a series of domiciles, the man we just suggested. They're just mentioned in, in the tree and then there's a series of three other ruddy-faced, bucolic scene of in their their little huts, their split timber huts. Okay, so Jimmy Possum could have been one of three people. He could have been an Irish person who'd come over after uh, during the Great Hunger yep. in Ireland. He could have been a freed convict. We could have been a First Nations man. But what seems to be so strong in this story is that somehow for you. That doesn't matter, that actually it's the myth that's the most important. Why is that? I like the enigma. I like the fact that we don't know who he is and we're so besotted with fact. You know, we have to get to the bottom of fact and, we, and a lot of times we destroy the, the fun of everything. I like it also because it encompasses a modern Australia. A refugee, someone on the lower levels of the settler class and First Nation. There's something... Um, beautiful in that enigma. Now, Mike, you have so beautifully brought in a tiny little model of a Jimmy Possum chair. Can you describe it? The legs intersect the seat and are housed in the arms, and there's five five back rungs, and the two outside ones um, intersect the arms and are housed in the seat. And this is an interconnected design. As someone sits in it, they compress the arms and sort of lean on the back, which sort of tightens the structure. 
Because the legs are tapered, and so the more you sit on the seat, the more it goes down into the legs. And and also on the arms as well. Yes. Yeah. So all the pressure points actually tighten the chair, which is an ingenious design. It is. So there are yeah. no nails necessary. Absolutely none. And no glue necessary. No, that's it. So to have the skills to be able to di design this and and then to go on and make it, that's extraordinarily clever. Well, in those days, it was a, a fairly commonplace skill set. There was a lot of, you know, split fences and, and shingles on roofs. If you went out to the, a lot of these farms in these days, those are the sort of requisite skills to, to actually have a farm. Uh, it wasn't a very rich area, so a timber worker would have had these basic tools and these basic skills. We've discovered in the last three years a, a, a new maker, Mr George Greenhill, who was a gentleman farmer at Westbury, and uh, he made these really idiosyncratic chairs very much in that whole configuration of a Jimmy Possum chair, but he made them with a lot of reclaimed materials, whereas the other chair makers are always making them out of green timber. So this evolution of the Jimmy Possum chair, so this, we're talking about the kind of middle 1800s and then going through into the 1900s, how much did the design of the chair evolve? What defines the Jimmy Possum, the configuration, didn't ch change that much. But the various chairmakers from around that Meander Valley interpreted it. A bit like a jazz musician. I'm unfortunately talking to a musician, so I won't throw in too many technical terms, but when they play something and then, and then someone reinterprets it. Yeah, you make it your own. Yeah. Yeah, so these makers throughout the, the last sort of 150 years have, have definitely made it their own. Very much. And we know a style. We can say that that's a cook or that's a Larkham. The, the biggest family of makers were the Larkhams, and we can tell various makers in that family just by the style. And how did they learn how to do the chairs? Was it just simply copying, or did they actually know Jimmy Possum? Again, this is this is conjecture. This yes. is not too many facts. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> but the one theory is that they're farmers, and their one day off would have been to play cricket. Very big cricket area around there, and a lot of these little villages had cricket fields, and they also had inns. And Jimmy Possum seems to have had a kind of a relationship with alcohol where he would swap or sell his chairs to inns. So a lot of these guys could have just stayed in an inn or had a drink after the match, saw the chairs, sat in the chairs, and oh, I might try and do this myself. But there's one maker, a guy called William Larkham, in the 1890s, oral histories are saying that Jimmy Possum went and visited his place, and he taught William to make a chair. And it's very hard to actually determine what's the difference between a Jimmy Possum and a William Larkham mm. because they're almost identical. There's some subtle differences. Like, we take the history of chairs perhaps almost for granted that um, you know, here, we, here we are in the studio, we're, we're sitting on some sort of plastic... Uh, not, not massively comfortable <laughs> chair, um, but perhaps it's something that we don't always think about until we go out and maybe look for a new chair for home or whatever. But actually, how did chairs come about? Like, how long have we been using chairs? This is a very Eurocentric yeah. viewpoint because a lot of cultures don't use chairs and it actually has been a kind of imposition on them, uh, the use of chairs. But chairs and Floors have a symbiotic relationship. This is why a lot of chairs were associated with power. 
you have the, the throne, you have a Lord's seat, you have the chairman's. There's a series of terms that, that denote power through a chair. And that was because they were rich enough to have a flat floor. Of course, if you're going to have four legs, you have to have a flat floor. Yeah. Because I'm sure you've been to a restaurant yeah. or somewhere where there isn't a flat floor. Oh, yeah. And you spend ages trying to sort of wedge napkins underneath it or something. The, the Great Australian Cafe. Yes, yeah. that's it. Uneven floors meant three-legged stools. And so basically it's a symbiotic relationship with colonialism. As the colonial project happened, or colonising project happened, and a lot of money came into the merchants, housing improved, floors became flat. So therefore the, the stool evolved into the four-legged stool and then had a back on it and then had arms on. This is the reason why we know that Jimmy Possum chair was not that old because it really has to rely on four legs. Mm -hmm. it, it, there's no way this could be a three-legged, whereabouts the hedge chair could be a three-legged chair. Yeah, I guess underneath a hedge it's not necessarily going to be a flat floor. Well, no, there's no guarantee. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so so here we are. We want to make a Jimmy Possum chair. Yep. How do you do it? Well, there are, there are several makers around Australia making Um but there's a sort of a sense of alienation in our furniture and I want to get investment back into the piece so that people can basically hand it down to their children. One of the other characteristics of the chair is that it's use, using a draw knife, not a lathe. What is a draw knife? Um, a draw knife's a two-handled blade and it was used in... There's records of it in Rome and Egypt, but I would say the, the most common use would have been Vikings. So they, you need to use it with a, with a vice? You need to hold the piece of timber you're, you're working, but that could be, you could tie it down. Yes. Or you could clamp it some way. Or there's, an, in, in, in England or in America, not in Australia, there's a thing called a, a shaving horse, which is a um, like a bench and you have your um, a platform where you put your work on and on that platform there's a, a pivoting head that's connected to your feet. Mm -hmm. And as you pull backwards your feet naturally go forward and hold it. So the, the more pressure you're having pulling backwards, the, the, the tighter the, the hold on, on that piece of wood. It's, it's like a, an equivalent of a Jimmy Possum chair. Absolutely, yes. yeah. So you need a draw knife. You need yep. uh, something to hold it. What else do you need? My factory and the factory of the chairmakers literally fits into a, a backpack. Oh, great. So we, it kind of it usurps the whole idea of production where I can go to the material source and I can find out about what happened in that house and we can record it, my partner, Roman, and I, and we go to abandoned house that's falling apart. We make a platform out of the timber and then we might pull a square metre out of that house and find out what happened in that square metre and then we record it and it has a story about that particular spot and places and, and and literally make it there or bring, make all the components and then assemble it back at home. So you're, you're kind of like a bush carpenter. Yeah, bush, yeah, like that. But it's one of those sort of strange expressions. It is a bush carpenter, but unfortunately it's, it, it's become a slight pejorative. I mean, it initially was used to saying, oh, there's someone whose his work's not too good, like a bodger. Uh, a bodgy I, I, work. Yeah. I, I see it as a celebration. Yeah. Absolutely. As, as somebody yeah. who, like you, does extraordinary things with very few materials. Yeah, well, I think that's it. It's, it's the whole idea of, of trying to make a statement of production. I use this system and we go to communities 
and and because I use reclaimed materials and materials that have connection to people and, and stories and history, and because now we have this ubiquitous tool like a smartphone that can record um, stories and 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 take photographs and record all that, and also research, we create as a communal experience, and we bring in a histories, and so the end result is a chair that represents that community, and in the making of it. People have learnt a bit more about other stories or other threads. And because it's an old piece of wood, there's no sort of social standing. You can't say, my piece of old rubbish wood is better than your piece of old rubbish wood or my story is more engaging. And so it has that sort of community building quality. Is there also a hope with, with this kind of work that people have more emotional attachment to their furniture? I think in Australia, we, we throw away a lot of furniture, don't we? Absolutely. I mean, we have a huge problem. 20 million tonnes, a quarter of what we throw away a year, a quarter of what we throw away is furnishings. In Australia alone, we throw away 20 million tonnes. That's right, yeah. That's kind of mind-boggling. It is. When you consider that, you know, all the showrooms around now, what we're seeing in there, will probably be in a landfill in three years. So, Mike, your ethos, something that seems to be incredibly important in your life, is the use of materials, reusing them, recycling. Where does all that come from? Was it very deep in your life, that, that type of culture? Very much where, so. Where do you come from? Like, where were you born? Uh, Wollombilla. Where's a, that? A little little township um, about 40 kilometres east of Roma. Oh, OK. Yeah, yeah. Right. Not Rome, Rome. Rome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a little cattle property. Area there, Herefords. When I was young, there were someone who had the audacity to uh, bring in a Brahmin, and they didn't speak to him for a year. That's how conservative. <laughs> so, how many years did you spend there? Did you spend the whole of your childhood there? No, no. I was till I was four, and yeah. but the, there was a extended family property, and we had other members of the family would come in and, and manage it. What sort of place was it that you lived in? An eighteen nineties tin shed, really round timbers and very hot, very, very... We was a time of drought, so it was it was like a furnace. Um, my father was out on the road one day pushing some cattle and he met a drover on the road and the drover came in and as they were going towards the house, he said, I, I, I used to live here. And I said, oh, really? And he said, yeah, yeah, we had 13 kids. Oh. And when he got to this two, two literally one bedroom, and he said, oh, you've extended. <laughs> <laughs> so... They knocked the house down when I was a one and my father built a house. But we left at four. My father was um, had done very well at university and was invited back to do a PhD in Armadale. And then he got invited to join LJ Hookers and looking after all the Jurek properties, which were the major properties up in uh, northern Australia. So we moved to Sydney and, and, and he would fly away to the properties maybe two, two weeks out of, out of a month. And in Sydney, you discovered an important connection with an ancestor, something to do with bricks, is that right? My father, when he was going to work one day, saw, um, as he was crossing the Harbour Bridge, saw all these properties in, in, in the rocks being destroyed. So he, he went down there and, and asked what they were doing with all the bricks, and they, and they said, we're just taking it to the tip. So he did what any Australian would do and got two cartons of beer and... And before you knew it, we had a whole lot of bricks to build a house. And 
these were old convict bricks. And it turns out that my ancestor on, on the first fleet was a, a brickmaker. Really? That's extraordinary. So that's, that's just come down all the way through your family. Yeah, well, the main tradition is he, he made the first piece of recorded furniture, a bed, in June 1788. It was a chap called Anthony Rope, and he was marrying a, a lady called Pulley. So it was Rope and Pulley. <laughs> you wouldn't write that. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And what happened is that when he was coming back from the brick fields, he discovered this um, goat that had been bitten by some dogs or killed by dogs. And so he cuts some meat off it and went back and they made this thing, diabolical thing called a sea pie. And that was what they celebrated their, their wedding was. And then that time was a capital offence to steal food. So three days after the event, they were charged with theft because of someone's goat. And so they were literally facing execution. And it's probably, they were, they were acquitted, so it was Australia's first acquittal. But I, I would suggest that he was probably one of the few people who could do things. And that was a bit of a, probably the first example of a, a rigged trial. Now, Mike, you, you've left us hanging with this um, idea of a sea pie. What's in a sea pie? You can't find any cookbooks. I think they've banned, they've banned any mention of it. I think you just scraps of meat and uh, you, put it in, you put it in a cast iron pot and hope for the best. <laughs> so you've, you were in Sydney. Your dad yep. has made a house from bricks which he's found on the rocks and swapped in exchange for some beer. But then your family, I think they moved to Darwin. Yeah, yeah, because he was away for most of the time and we'd sold the property out Western Queensland in, at Roma, which this is mm. 1974. It was one of those eye-opening experiences in my life. Growing up, we were in North Shore uh, at St Ives in Sydney, which is very white bread, very predictable, and moved to Darwin and it was, everyone was there. It was all, just everyone from around the world and everyone was getting on. It was a wonderful, wonderful thing. The, the least amount of racism I've, I've observed, everyone seemed to, to get on. And we were there and we lived on near a beach called Nycliffe Beach, which was the worst spot for the cyclone. What do you remember of this time? How old were you? I was 12. You were 12, so mm. you will have had very strong memories of it. Very strong. I can, can remember Can you it. describe that night? Absolutely. It was a terrifying event. It was... There'd been a couple of cyclones before. My mother's a teacher and there was a lot of First Nation kids from communities outside and they said to her, Miss, there's a big storm coming, get out of town. And there was a, sm a small storm that came in beforehand or a, a cyclone and she went into the class and said, well, I didn't think too much of your cyclone. And I thought, that's not it, that's a big one coming. So, you know, there were some understandings that this was a calamitous event. But essentially, um, because of that, that first one coming, we were all a little bit slapdash. You feel in your house that you, you're utterly secure. There's a sort of sense of safety. And I can remember just waiting in the, in watching this huge picture win window and watching all the, all the trees just bend over, feeling terribly safe. And then uh, a big gust of wind took an air conditioning and just took it from one, broke one uh, door and went right through the other side and literally the whole room was sucked out. <gasps> And so we then rushed into my brother's bedroom and we waited there until the, the eye of the cyclone passed over, which is not, I had always thought it was placid, but it's not, you go from a very heavy storm to a very mild storm, but still a storm. Mm. So my father sn uh, snuck out and got all the Christmas presents and we all thought this is going to be our last Christmas. 
And then we heard this. So you opened your presents. We all opened the presents, In yeah. the middle of Cyclone Tracy. Yeah, yeah. And we heard this um, this freight train. That's all I can describe. But it was this huge noise. And every time it would go bang, bang, bang. And it was the cyclone coming from the other, the wind coming from the other direction. And eventually hit us and the whole room just exploded, atomized. It was, the wall went flying off. There was just glass. Everything was flying around. So I jumped to my brother and my father, got my mother and my other brother, and, and we sort of went across to the bathroom. Fortunately, we had a rope in there, so we were able to tie um, the towel rack uh, to another, another rack which braced that structure. If we hadn't had that, I don't think we would have survived. But we were tasting bracken water all the time and hearing this peeling of... of um, the sounds are the worst. Uh, the, the peeling of um, iron and it's getting closer and closer and closer. And I, I'm a fairly, I was a big child. I was, you know, big and strong. I was probably about six foot that time. My father was six foot three and again, strong. But both of us had bruised arms from holding the door back because we were holding them in case the, the wind blew the, the bathroom door in. We woke up and looked out the window and it was just, um, it was like Hiroshima and everyone says that's the way they, they saw it. It was just devastation. We couldn't believe anyone could be alive. And eventually you'd hear a voice here and a voice there. But in our street, there was quite a few people killed. There was kids up the road who were put into a kitchen, covered with the eye, cyclone, then sucked out to sea. on air, online, and on the ABC Listen app. This is Conversations. You can subscribe to the Conversations podcast. To find out more, just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. So, Mike, you were telling us about your time in Darwin and the devastation wrought by Cyclone Tracy. How did the community respond after the cyclone in those weeks and months? There was this beautiful human spirit that I've never forgotten, that, that people are fundamentally good and helpful. They were so happy to be alive and so happy other people were alive. Uh, it was a wonderful moment that you almost didn't want to leave but we obviously left uh, but the men had to stay in town children and and women were evacuated that loss complete loss of possessions how did that affect you well I, I think and I look back at it it's affected me a lot because I I really don't I'm not driven to acquire lots of possessions I'm driven to find that spirit I suppose that spirit I felt post Darwin that to me is far more important. So, uh, and also I just saw how quickly they're gone. All this, all these things are just broken debris now. So another reason why I'm, I'm attracted to, I suppose, abandoned houses. I can sense that, that there was this culture there and it's still remnants there. It's looking back and, and tying these fractured, all these, all these um, 
cut threads and, and, and re-establishing a fabric from them. With you being sent to boarding school, what happened to the rest of your family? Uh, they lived underneath the house. There was a bathroom there and we got the water on. I think my father got a demountable. Um, so life went on pretty well. My brother was digging in the backyard one day and, and discovered my mother's or my great-great-grandmother's ring. So he said, I, I like the cycling because there's so many things you can find. So <laughs> there was a whole lot of uh, kiddie adventure. Yeah, yes. There was lots of little gangs running around in abandoned houses. Um, it was slightly dystopic, but, yeah, I'd come back on holidays and try and catch up with friends. That was the worst thing I found was the cutting of, of friendships. And he didn't know it. basically at that point it's gone and you don't know where they went to and what happened. Did your parents continue to stay in Darwin or did they have to go out of town to find work? No, my mother continued teaching. Yeah. And my father, fortunately, the, the building he was in was not affected uh, and so he could work there. But we also had a property down and on the Daly River. Uh, but unfortunately, because Northern Territory at that time, they'd have all these wonderful breaks and there'd be always something would go wrong, like the bags would be rotten or there'd be a flood and you couldn't get stuff out. So there's always this whole idea that you were living in a, in a quite a remote and who knows what happens, could happen, yeah. So your mum and dad, they stayed on to rebuild. You moved down south to Toowoomba to go to boarding school and your grandfather came to visit you at school one day out of the blue to tell you some news. Yeah, yeah, and there was... Um, my father was pushing cattle on, on the river and the kids, the share farmer's kids were outside playing and there was just one one bolt of lightning and didn't come back and my mother had to go and look for him two hours later and he was crumpled in the on the on the next to the river. He'd been struck by lightning and killed instantly. How old were you at this point? Uh, I was thirteen. Oh. Yeah. oh my gosh. How did you deal with that? Well, fortunately, we had a very strong mother, yeah. And again, my grandparents insisted my my mother and my aunt were educated. My mother was a, had a degree in arts and, and diploma in teaching before she was 20. So that enabled us to survive. Mm. And yeah, she pulled it together. Yeah, she made sure that we were, we were safe and we were doing what regular teenagers did and gone with their lives. Yeah. She did the equivalent of your father tying the bathroom together. Yeah, she seemed absolutely. To, she braced you, essentially. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, it was a wonderful, a wonderful thing that she did. Where did you go then to live? I mean, here you are now at school in Toowoomba, but how did she brace the family? Did she bring the family together now? Uh, we went back to Toowoomba, so I could continue as a, as a day boy, and my other brother was going to go to the, to the school that year and she got fortunately got a job and it was they didn't want her to give her a job because she was in those days the sexism was just outrageous she had to bring my grandfather in for her to the bank so oh. she'd get a loan it was only because chap had heard the story and had taken the time out and rung up brisbane central office that she got a job and so if it hadn't been for his inter, his intervention she wouldn't have got a job your mother sounds so extraordinary, but also your grandfather. It sounds like your like the the healing that you would have had to have gone through 
after Darwin and after the death of your father and such a sudden death, the, the time spent with your grandfather, was it very, very important to you? It was, yeah. Yeah, it was. It was very formative. Again, a lot of what I do now is, is picked up from what yeah. he did. He was a bank manager and every bank he went to, he would collect wood. And so we'd go to his wood stash and he would point to that and he'd say, oh, that's Roma, oh, that's Bundaberg, and he'd tell me the stories about it. So... I've actually created anything new. I've just, I've just uh, lifted, lifted all my family's <laughs> processes and yeah, this, <laughs> rebadged them. That's right. This, this beautiful line coming down through your family. So, was it your grandfather who really started to get you working with your hands and working with wood? Very much. Mm. Yeah. He, he. Um, we would work on a little bit of little farm on the outskirts of Toowoomba. We would make together, and he'd make bits of furniture and. It's not in the style of studio furniture, it's vernacular. It's very much that can-make-do tradition. And that's what I absorbed, this whole idea that you, you have a problem, you don't give it up, you deal with what you have at, you, at your disposal, you don't look to what you haven't got, and you apply yourself. And if it doesn't work out the first time, you try the second time and the third time, and you learn by doing. So that was the sense he, he, he gave me, that, that kind of... Methodology, I suppose. Yes. Mm. Lessons like that are often even more powerful than what we learn in school, aren't absolutely. they? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. At what point did you then realise this is what I want to do with the rest of my life? Um, I was hitchhiking around the country and... Um, at what sort of age? Uh, 18. Uh, fruit picking. I left school. I wasn't very good at school. Um, I had sequential logic problem. I'd put the last thing first and the middle thing last and and so didn't quite figure that one out. So I meet this old chap. He says, um, I can't give you any money and then went to his place. Um, I can't remember, near Dubbo or somewhere. And it was full of all this packing case furniture and um, it was just amazing. And it was very, very messy. And so I stayed there a week or two, helped him clean up and did some work and he showed me the fundamentals of, of that kind of furniture. So I wouldn't say it was a, a comprehensive study or anything like that, but I, I certainly picked up enough to be able to, to teach myself. And did you then want to go on and study more formally? After a couple of years, I, yeah. I really did apply myself. And when I was 20, I went down from Toowoomba to Melbourne and studied at the school, private school then. It was a Melbourne School of Woodcraft. And to pay for that, I got a job with Hooper's Antiques, who were at that time focusing on what was called Australian primitive furniture, which was furniture that was from the frontier or depression era and uh, had been driven by a guy called Lord McAlpine who was who was in there investing heavily in that stuff. So it was, it was the buzz at that particular time, which is fortunate to me because that was what I was doing. So I walked in to the Hoopers and the first day I saw a Jimmy Possum chair where I, I really? my road to Damascus. <gasps> oh my gosh! Yeah. How old was the one that you saw? Um, it well, I know now it was. I'd say it'd be eighteen ninety. Three years ago, I was walking through uh, Nambour uh, at the Nambour swap meet, and this, I saw some fresh and era furniture. And I walked up to him, and for some peculiar reason, he said, "Do you want to buy a Jimmy Possum chair?" And when I went round to see his place, to this chair, and it was exactly the same chair I'd seen it. <laughs> really? Yeah. Did you buy it? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh. It's a McMahon yeah. chair. Yeah. When you saw your first Jimmy Possum chair, did you kind of feel that everything that you had learned up to this point had come together? 
I just felt that this was it. That was it. It was a really exciting moment. It was an electric moment. I just look, look at that. Because I'd, I'd, I'd been making these chairs. Again, they were kind of vernacular chairs, but with the old sort of process of the legs underneath and, and the frame above, which is the evolution of a chair. That's how it happened. And because peasant cultures are so conservative, I hadn't adjusted to that. And so when I saw this beautiful design, I went, look at that. That's just fantastic. Although... I should say also that the design has one major flaw, which is that it has five rungs in the back, which means that the middle one runs right at your backbone. Gosh. So my whole life's been to evolve that particular, okay. iron that particular bug out of it. So I'm, I'm imagining that an even number would be slightly better. It, yeah, a lot better. Yeah. It's an anathema really to a, to a chair maker is to have even, um, an odd number of, of yeah. back rungs. With these very, very old chairs that you look at them and, and you you touch them, I know that many of them are so old and precious now that we, we shouldn't really sit in them, but do you have a feeling, like do you get a kind of vibe off the chair of the people who would have made them or the people who sat in them and what thoughts they might have had, what what they would have said or Absolutely. where the chairs have been? Yeah. Yeah, that was the that's the beauty of the the Jimmy Possum tradition, and that's the beauty of this exhibition is that it's the first time it's ever been where they've been in one room. Yeah. And when you see them together, you see them as individual people because they they're so different, different sizes. And because they've been owned by a family, there's all these stories associated with each particular chair. You know, they might have told kids stories in that chair, or they might have sat by the fire in that chair. So very much because I was sort of intimately involved with all this history, I see the chair, I see the people. Um, I feel the love for that particular that piece of furniture. The chair seems to have a particularly beautiful kind of absence of a human to it. Absolutely. Yeah, it's an anticipatory space for a human form. Oh, what a great way of putting it. Is that why you love chairs? Do you make any other type of furniture? No, no, just to, um, just I'm like Henry Ford. Um, yeah, it's just it's just basic. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, I, um, I I've taken the approach that where a lot of uh, people, artists or artisans, who are looking at kind of a, a horizontal approach to art, they might be very concerned with with say climate change, and so they'll make different interpretations of that as part of their practice, where I, 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 I'm more vertical. I look at one thing and try and find as much as I can applications out of that one configuration or, or style, which is Jimmy Possum. How many Jimmy Possum chairs do you think you've made so far? Um, probably mm, close to 500, I think. That's, that's quite a few years. I've been doing it for 36 years. So in 1978, when the, when the only other research happened, they estimated there was only 300 chairs extant or existing in the in the Jimmy Possum tradition. So I've certainly added to the number. How soon after you saw your first Jimmy Possum chair did you actually make one? I made that. I went back and made it that evening. Oh, yeah, seriously? Yeah, yeah, I was that, that, that enthralled by it. Yeah. I'm still enthralled by it. I still love it. Yeah. I can, I can talk to... <laughs> I can bore people senseless for hours talking about it. <laughs> I know that as um, the people who make musical instruments, particularly string instruments, that they can look at a piece of wood and see the potential and there's that idea also that you knock the wood mm -hmm. and tap the wood to hear the sound and hear the vibration. Is there a similar thing with chair makers that you will 
look at a piece of wood and go, well, that's right for a certain part of the chair? Well, because it's draw knifed, um, we need straight grain timber. And so very much that you tap it and you have a high high tone and you know that there's not, not going to be any knots in the, in the timber. That's part of the wonderful thing about draw knifing is that you're actually encountering the life of this tree. It's not just some disembodied experience where you're putting a chisel to a lathe and you're seeing a shape evolve. You're actually got a knife and you are forming that organic piece of history mm. into a shape. So you cut down the grain of the timber rather than across it? Very much. Yeah, you follow that. So uh, you always seek straight grain timber and so you look for knots, but also one great little trick is to sort of hear that hear that um, tapping and if there's a knot there, the, the sound, the vibration doesn't, doesn't go through the, the timber, gets stopped mm. by the knot. Do you have a favourite one of your chairs that you've made? I do, yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's called Re-Examine and it was part of the outcome of doctoral research that um, my partner and I did in, in Tasmania. And everywhere we'd go, I'd get a piece of timber from that spot that was important to that particular element of the story, like where the stump where Jimmy Possum was supposed to have um, lived. But in summer months, there was a blackwood tree that had been cut up, so I got a section of that that had been used. And then I went to various other places and got other bits of timber and made them on site and finishing with the uh, bed end from the Larkham house and that's the headrest. So the, the actual object tells the story of the, the history and our research. What a beautiful thing that must be. Okay, so here we are. We're in a studio, in the ABC studio, for the last little while. We've been sitting on plastic and some sort of maybe foam-covered chair. Not massively comfortable. Um, how comfortable? If we'd been sitting here on Jimmy Possum chairs, how much more comfortable would we have been? On the original ones, we'd, mm. be, we'd be hopping out because okay. we're, we're very spoiled modern people. <laughs> and we don't, <laughs> they seem to be a lot more stoic in the old days. On my chairs, I've, I've now made the back, back rungs 12. So, oh, okay. Yeah, so it's quite, and I've I've made it so that the, the bottom is sort of accommodates the back, the curve of your 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 back. So um, everyone says my chairs are very very comfortable. Again, this is a, a, a complaint against modern furniture, you know, bad backs. Yeah, and a lot of that time is just because we're living in sitting in these really poor chairs, and also we're heating up our, you know, heating our backs up. Um, or about if you sat in a chair that could you could breathe. Um, it's far better because your back's cooling down. You can also, because it's draw-knifed, it has multiple lots of facets, so you mm. can rub your, rub your back and give yourself a massage at the same time. Wow. So so with Jimmy Possum chairs, this extraordinary evolution, do you feel that Jimmy Possum, in whatever evolution that he was, do you think he would have approved? Oh, of, yeah, of, absolutely. Of a more modern interpretation of his chair? Yeah, I think so. Mm. I, mean, I, I don't think he would have approved of, you know, being the... the lathe and and that whole idea of yeah. turning it out in a in a factory but he very much liked the whole idea that there was again i'm only assuming this he could have been a uh, a misanthrope like other chair makers um oh hang on a minute really <laughs> yes it's are there different personalities for different type of furniture makers oh, i think yeah, you could pretty well say chair makers they're not the most collegial of uh, groups, oh. yeah. Are we yeah. going to get complaints from chairmakers, oh, probably. Mike? They're probably, probably the last chairmaker ever to appear in this program. 
I, well, I hope not. I mean, you may be the first, but I hope you won't be the last. Spending so much time with these chairs, these Jimmy Possum chairs, has it made you want to travel overseas and maybe have a look at some other traditions of chair making? It has. Yeah, I'd love to go and see uh, the Welsh Welsh stick chair and Irish uh, hedge chair and, and, and to see what what people are doing over there. What does a Welsh stick chair look like? It looks very similar to a to a um, Irish hedge chair, but the, the, the legs usually have a kind of a, almost a tent post effect where they have like eight facets, so they're, they're squarer rather than round. But because the Irish and the Welsh are so close in that, I imagine there's a lot of cross, cross-pollination. What about the actual physical pleasure of making one of these chairs? Absolutely. I mean, the amount of times I've had people at my workshops or my co-creation events um, uh, have said, I've been feeling, um, like, depressed and I've been feeling down and I feel fantastic. And it's this whole sense of transformation, of you seeing something that on the outside, this, this timber that looks, to all intents and purposes, so it should be thrown away, that you actually see underneath it and it's, it's this vibrant, vital, viable piece of wood. And then you turn these bits under a tree, you carve them, and then you turn into a chair, which you sit in. And it seems to... Um, just really, really resonate with people. They they love it. Yeah. So, Mike, all, all all these chairs are made from different pieces of wood, different pieces of wood, different pieces of found wood, and with the Jimmy Possum design, the more you sit on it, the firmer it gets. Yeah. It 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 seems very much that this is how your life has evolved so far. I mean, you you're not an old man at all, but that that you've taken all these different experiences and that you've put them together into something that is an incredibly well-crafted life. Well, it's <laughs> a very generous description. <laughs> At the time, it wasn't a, a well-crafted... I think it was more um, ad hoc, but um, it seemed to have worked out all right. Well, the more you sit in it, the stronger it gets, right? That's it, yeah, yeah. Or more resolute it gets. How would you hope that this will influence people here in Australia, particularly as consumers? I think um, bearing in mind how, how much we, we lose, how much rubbish goes out, I, I would like to sort of feel it, the sense of connection that the Jimmy Possum tradition has and this whole idea that we, we can create connection with furniture like they have done um, and de-alienate, I suppose, that would be the how I would view it, that, mm. there, that there's a, an ability for people to uh, feel like they are part of that piece of furniture, be it history or be it material or be it part of the, part of the, part of the production. Well, that's a, a great spot to end on. Mike, thank you very much. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you today. Now, I should let you know, you know there's a, a new bridge being built just over there, just over the uh, Brisbane River, So maybe it's time to go out and see what the uh, builders have left behind. (laughs) Thanks very much for joining me. My pleasure. It was wonderful. Dr Mike Epworth is a chair builder, teacher and curator of the first major exhibition of the Jimmy Possum chair-making tradition, showing at Launceston's Queen Victoria Museum and Gallery in November. I'm Ed LeBrock. Thanks so much for listening.
You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations. I'm Jonathan Green, and I'm in Paris with a burning question. Taxi! How many Parisians live within five minutes of a bakery? Oh. Oh, really? Well, that's extraordinary. Thanks. This and other secrets of the world revealed in a new season of Return Ticket, the travel podcast that takes you on journeys of the mind. In this new season, we're off to Paris, Venice, Kuala Lumpur, Las Vegas and Timbuktu. Yes, that's right, Timbuktu. Where even is that? Return ticket. Subscribe on the ABC Listen app.